Welcome to Optimistic Voices, a podcast of helping children worldwide. We help children worldwide by strengthening and empowering families and communities. This podcast is for people interested in deep conversations with thought leaders in the fields of child welfare, global health, and international missions. Welcome to the HCW Optimistic Voices podcast. I'm your host, Yasmin Vaughn. On today's episode of the podcast, we're going to talk about the development of global health programs. Today's episode peels back the curtain to show the considerations that are made by organizations around the world when it comes to building sustainable programs. And for those of you getting into this work, this may help you understand some challenges that you may face and see some gaps in your program planning. With me today is Mariama Masakoy, a family medicine doctor based in Virginia. Mariama and her siblings run an organization called Tenki for Born, an organization dedicated to alleviating maternal mortality in Sierra Leone. Tenki began about two years ago and has been doing health system strengthening work in Bo, including training midwives, funding clinical improvements, and other activities. Welcome, Mariama. Thanks, Yasmin. I'm uh, very excited to be here and to uh, have this discussion with you today. We're so glad to have you too. Mariama is also on the planning committee of our upcoming Rising Tides conference. Every year, HCW hosts a conference called Rising Tides, named after the JFK quote that a rising tide lifts all boats. This year's Rising Tides theme is Together for Global Health, named after our coalition of global health organizations. We're hosting this conference because HCW is committed to promoting sustainable healthcare access worldwide. If you listen to our Yes Melody episode in December, which you totally should because it's very good, um, you would know that HCW has always wanted to help children worldwide, and that we see the best way to do this is to strengthen other organizations around the world who provide healthcare services to the most vulnerable. Together for Global Health, both the coalition and the conference, is focused on providing resources and avenues for collaboration to organizations and individuals so that our programs can provide care in the best possible way. With that in mind, today's episode is focused on what goes on to making a good global health program. Mariama will be sharing with us some of the things that she has learned as she built Tenki, and I will share some of the things we considered as we started our programs in Sierra Leone. Shout out to Cynthia Horner uh, and Susan Anderson, who helped me as I uh, developed this. We will also, of course, be plugging some of our conference breakout sessions as they go along with some of these topics. Yeah, and a disclaimer, right, that you don't have to have it all in place before you start, right? Sometimes uh, building the plane in the air is okay. Um, it hopefully won't fall and uh, uh, things are going to work out, right? If I waited for things to be perfect, um, we wouldn't have started tanky. So um, um, don't let perfection paralyze you and, and start where you can. You wait until you have every little thing in place, you'll never start. We're just trying to go through a couple of the considerations and challenges that you should think about as you start this work. Um, I'm glad you started with that disclaimer because another one that I want to offer is that this is not necessarily a comprehensive list of all the considerations to make when building a program. There are so many additional things that can make a clinic, hospital, healthcare worker training, disease eradication program successful, but these are just a few of the challenges. Uh, so with that in mind, I want to plug uh, Partners in Health, which has an excellent, fan, like absolutely fantastic program management guide available for other organizations to learn as they begin programs. Uh, and we'll share that information in our bio for those who want to look at it more in depth. So 
Mariama, what is the first step in any new global health program? Well, one of our first steps was uh, starting with passion, right? Um, um, what are you passionate about? Uh, it tends to not work well if you don't um, start with something that's going to keep you going, right? That's going to fill your cup up um, because we're all busy, right? And so if you get busy with other things and you're not passionate about uh, whatever program you're working on, that's going to kind of fall by the wayside, Um so with Tanky, right, I've uh, basically been since college, know that I was going to go back to Sierra Leone. That's where my parents are from and kind of uh, work in healthcare and help them out. And uh, since I was in medical school and I kind of saw a shadow OB doctor and kind of saw the poor care that they were experiencing and all of the complications from not having that kind of quality of care. That's been my focus since medical school and kind of helping in the maternal and child health region. Um, and it's been keeping me going uh, so far. <laughs> yeah. I love that passion coming from such a personal connection through your family. Um, when we began our programs uh, in working with Mercy Hospital, uh, at the time we were just running an orphanage. Uh, but we knew that we wanted to do something more to help the poorest people in the world get access to healthcare. Um, so yeah, start with that passion. Um, and once you follow your passion and figure out what you're going to do, you'll probably be really excited about what you're going to accomplish. Um, so that reminded me that, you know, something to keep in mind is setting realistic goals. If you go in with the idea that you can change the world in a year, you're probably going to be a bit discouraged. Um, so setting a goal that you can achieve is really important. Um, you may not know exactly what goals to set either. So if you're like, oh my gosh, like I don't even know where to start. Um, it's important to have grace when you don't reach those goals too. Um, you should know who you are and what your resources are. So for example, when we started Mercy's medical programs, we started with conversations with local subject matter experts. And we'll talk about that in a little bit to see what programs they thought would make the most impact in their community. And programs like malaria, nutrition, HIV, and prenatal came up over and over again. So we started with that. We also started by piloting these programs in a few communities before expanding them to other communities. And this helped ensure our success because we were starting with smaller goals. We, of course, had the big dream of building something bigger, and we still have big dreams of building something bigger. But well, we started with what we had and what we knew our partners knew and could do. Mariama, did you have a similar experience with Tenki? Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I I love that. Like you know, setting goals that you can achieve. Definitely, when I started this out, like my goal or dream was like, oh my gosh, Sierra Leone, like all these you know hospitals are poor. They don't have running water, electricity. Like I'm going to build a state-of-the-art hospital. It's going to have all the things that are in the Western country, right? Like this is what Sierra Leone needs and we can do it now. And, you know, reality check, <laughs> it takes like millions of dollars to build, you know, a state-of-the-art facility. And you also need people, right? Which Sierra Leone, unfortunately, doesn't have like a lot of, you know, um, residency trained providers like OBGYNs and pediatricians and things like that. Like they don't have a lot of human resources for health to even like sustain a place if you were to build it. Right. So after, uh, I think I got some of that knowledge from getting my master's in public health, but um, once I kind of realized that, Hey, like, while this pie in the sky is nice to have, and I'm sure like a lot of people have thought about it. It is important, like you said, to, to kind of start off small, right. Understanding what the community needs are and where you can kind of plug yourself in to help them 
meet those and then kind of uh, to grow where you can. So we ended up, you know, focusing on maternal uh, and child health and then specifically within that realm, kind of uh, right now focusing on the ultrasound program. Um, because that's where the community uh, wanted to go. And that's where we could help them based on our um, experience. Yeah. Yeah. I like uh, that you started with the community engagement. Um, I want to, I want to touch back on that. Um, I also want to say that another way to understand if your goal is realistic is to engage with the local government. Um, I'll give an example. Another organization we work with was planning to build a clinic in a village in Sierra Leone, and they met with the district medical team uh, in the country, and they learned that there was already another clinic in a neighboring village. And the law said that if there were two clinics that were so many meters apart, um, that the district would not give funding to both of them because they were too close together. So they were able to pick a different community to work in that had uh, less access to medical care and then be able to work better with the government. So understanding the structure of the system, you know, is the country divided into districts, provinces, who's the relevant cabinets, ministries that are involved in this, and building a relationship with the government can increase your impact by avoiding this duplication of services. Um, A lot of countries require NGOs and civil service organizations to do registration, uh, which can be a lot of paperwork, uh, but this lends legitimacy to your work. Uh, And so at the very beginning of what we did, we engaged with the low school district management team to get their blessing on building our hospital. Um, We wanted them to know that the work we were doing was to complement and supplement the existing structures, not to be a competition to that. Yeah. um, And with that, um, so when we started with the ultrasound program, we were initially going to just start right in the local community where my grandmother was from. Um, but we asked the community health officer to go ahead and reach out to uh, the district health sister that was there and see were there any other places that they thought that this would be useful Um Um, teaching OB ultrasound. And we let them, the district health team, pick out what those other places were going to be that they thought would be a benefit. And I think that helped um, kind of make sure that it wasn't all localized, right, just to where we knew, but that we were being welcomed in other places um, that could also benefit from our our, um, training. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like that opened a lot of doors for you guys. I want to touch back to what you were saying about community engagement. Um, That's really an important thing about how we built our early programs, meeting the people you were planning to work with, I say with and not for, uh, and understanding their felt needs. Um, We work with an organization called One Village Partners that does community mapping projects. We're hoping to have them on an upcoming podcast episode, but um, doing a health assessment, a community mapping project learning what's needed, what the challenges will be, and even what other organizations are working in your area that you could collaborate with is really important. Um, So engaging with the community is a big part of what we call a a learn, then do philosophy. Um, And sometimes when you engage with the community, you see that there are uh, very different things that you get involved in. Uh, Mariama, I I think you kind of wanted to talk a little bit about how you guys got involved with doing school projects. Yeah. So, um, I mean, right. I'm a, I'm a doctor. So my background is in health and that was kind of my main focus. But when, um, this was years ago now, uh, when we did a kind of a needs assessment and we did some small groups to kind of see what the 
community wants us to do, right? What is, what are they interested in? And one of those things was the schools, right? So their primary school and health education is kind of poor. So that was one of their focuses. They also did want health. So winning, that was uh, in line with what we were, we wanted to do as well. And then adult skills and literacy um, was something else. So they kind of had three things from the small groups that we had. Um, mind you, most of them were comprised of women. So the, the people, I guess, that were available were mostly men, women, but um, these were the things that they were focused on. And this was in a rural community. And so out of those, we knew that we could help with the uh, maternal health aspect and that we felt we could also take on um, the education aspect. So right now we're kind of working on helping them to get transportation so that the kids can go to the schools. Cause some of them travel quite far, like four and a half miles. Like I walked it with them and I was like, this is insane. <laughs> um, so we're trying to, trying to help them kind of get transportation for that. And then also to go to the secondary school, cause they don't have one in the rural community. So instead of them having to move their kids to bow to stay with strangers, we'll uh, raise funds to get transportation so they can just stay at home. That's the goal anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like you guys really expanded outside of what you were hoping to do in global health. Um, but in doing so, you were able to build some community trust and partnership. Um, in, in our experience, you really have to respect local knowledge. Um, when we began our work with Mercy Hospital, we talked to doctors in Bo about the needs and where we should visit with our medical outreaches. And the doctors told us, you need to ask the communities. Um, and they also warned us that when we asked the communities, the community might say, we need a soccer field. Um, a soccer field is not going to alleviate any health issues, um, but by listening to what they said and following through on our promises, we would be able to open the door for them to be open to doing other things with us. Um, and it's so interesting that this experience happened to us. I was just reading another book called Freeing Congregational Mission, uh, which is all about ethical approaches to doing uh, short-term missions work. And it talked about this as well. He was working in a community he was like, you guys need wells and a health clinic and all these other things. And they said, nope, we're going to start with a soccer field. Um, and that that opened the door for them to be able to work together. Um, so local partnerships uh, ensure also that the community sees the value and the validity of the work that you're doing um, because you engage with them authentically and follow through on your promises. Um, and Dr. Carol McIntosh uh, will be leading a session at Rising Tides about her work of engaging communities in implementing COVID prevention and vaccine protocols in Grenada. Uh, so, for example, in Grenada, something like quarantine uh, was very difficult to implement because most people live with many family members in the house uh, and it's not a very large space. So isolating was almost impossible. Um, so she'll be talking about uh, that engagement with communities uh, this upcoming March. Yeah. And, and, and thinking about communities and being engaged with them. One thing that we found is also like really trying to understand their, their language and their culture. Right. I think there's a, a misconception sometimes that either the uh, European language, right. Is something that uh, that country might be fluent in, whether it's English or French or whatever, that if you're um, talking to them in that language, that they understand you and they'll receive that information well. Um, 
in, especially in the educated side, right? If you're if you're training educated people, but the the truth is, right? A first language is a first language, and in these countries, typically English is not their first language, right? It's either the local, you know, could be Mende or Timini in Sierra Leone or uh, Creole, right? Those are their first languages, and so really understanding that um, that language when you're training is, is an important part, and then also understanding the culture. So before we leave any place, like before we enter it, we always ask for permission, right, from those leaders that are there. And then before we leave the place, we also have town hall meetings just because we know that that's very important for the community. It's very important for like the local chief, the paramount chief that's over like the smaller little uh, townships. Um to make sure that everybody's on the same page, that we've gotten the respect and the endorsement of that leader, right? Because if the Paramount Chief isn't involved, it's kind of like it didn't happen. So, um, so it's under it's important to understand those different cultural nuances um, when you're um, engaging a community. And then also, unfortunately, in Sierra Leone, uh, like um, bribery and corruption and it's something that Sierra Leone, I think, as a community um, is trying to overcome, but it's still very much embedded in the culture and still making sure that you uh, understand that so you can avoid those pitfalls, understand, you know, what are you paying for? Who is asking you for it? What the transparency looks like so you don't fall into any of those things um, unknowingly, even sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. It is it is a, a difficult thing to work in. Um, and some of that is also due to the history of experiences with other groups um, being willing to uh, fall into those traps and pitfalls. Uh, so understanding the, the history uh, and its experience with outsiders, uh, Western influences especially, um, what are their experiences of working with other communities uh, is a huge thing. Um, I'm glad you brought up uh, the issue of uh, language as a big piece. Um, you're right. The vast majority of people may speak English as their second or third language, uh, but who's? it's very difficult to try to learn new information uh, in a language that is not coming naturally to you. Um, I also uh, I want to talk a little bit about probably what I would call the elephant in the room uh, with any nonprofit work, which is fundraising. Uh, being able to raise enough money to do the wonderful things that you want to do. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit about your experience with that? <laughs> yeah, fundraising. Ah, yeah, it's hard. <laughs> um, it is hard. And, um, you know, that was that was part of what took Tanky a little bit of time to actually get established, right, was that, honestly, we were saving our own money to kind of put into the organization so that we knew that we could have a start and some semblance of sustainability, of financial sustainability, while we were asking and raising uh, money in the future. And what we found just in the, like this past couple of years is that outside of grants, right, just talking about raising money, is that when you direct it towards something specific, we're able to get um, more money. <laughs> so like, if we're like, hey, we want to get solar panels for this clinic and it's going to cost us this much, can you give us this money? People are like, oh yeah. And then it's an easy thing that they can see, right? And then we're like, oh look, we put solar panels up and they have lights here, yay. And everybody's excited. They saw that they gave us money and there was a product. Same thing uh, with the ultrasound machines. We were first just going to do one clinic. And then we were like, hey, if you guys give us money, we'll get more ultrasound machines and train other people. And we gave them a target, how much it would cost with the ultrasound machines, the iPads, everything, right, included. People gave us money. 
And then we were able to do that and we were able to show them the product of it. So I think um, starting off specific and, and quote unquote, relatively small has helped us kind of go a long way in, in raising those pots of money. Now it's the transportation thing. It's a bigger, that costs more money. So honestly, it's, it's kind of harder, <laughs> but, um, but still starting with that. So people know, here's our target. Um, can you give us money for it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's an excellent lesson to pass on to anybody who's getting involved in this field uh, or who wants to understand a little bit of how uh, programs structure the way that they solicit uh, donor funding. Um, every nonprofit I know struggles with fundraising, and we're always trying to find new ways to raise money. Uh, and these specific, tangible, one-to-one uh, sort of projects are, are a great way to do that. Um, one thing I'll add to that is um, our philosophy has been that it's really not about getting the money. It's about building relationships with people. Um, because if you have a relationship with someone, they become invested in the work that you're doing. Um, they become a part of the work that you're doing. Uh, and then the money flows from that. Um, as a part of our in-person only pre-conference sessions, we will be having a fundraising expert named Nadine, excuse me, Nadine Gabby Botero, uh, please forgive me, Nadine, if I mispronounced your name, uh, who will be talking to us about how we connect with donors and develop a fundraising strategy for your organization. Um, I'll plug also uh, in PAH's strategy for program management. They have a, a whole section about fundraising, and they talk about identifying an evangelist. Uh, who is somebody within the organization that is motivated to raise the profile of the organization by reaching out to others and telling their story in a really compelling way. Um, so like Christian evangelists, go tell the story of Jesus. Uh, a fundraising evangelist is somebody who's really passionate about um, going out and uh, and getting people interested in the story. Yeah, and I mean, like with that, just bringing people in and building those relationships, um, also brings up the idea of just building a good team like we've we've added to our team over time um like ob Jin just joined our team actually because he was so interested in the work that we we're doing and it helps like spread the word right he has a whole different avenue of people that he can connect with um in terms of of, of spreading the word and building that um building that recognition and support and so like with our with our team, we kind of have uh, an array of people. We have physicians. So me, I'm a family physician, OB, OB fellowship trained. I, another one of my friends from residency was um, a family physician, but now she's uh, ultrasound fellowship trained. We have a social psychologist that's out in California. And then my sisters who are in the film uh, production industry. Um, we all unfortunately have full-time jobs, so it makes uh, it makes Tanky a, a little bit harder to stay on top of sometimes. But because of the passion that we have, right? We talked about before, we keep it we keep it going. It's not necessarily uh, taxing for us. It's um, it kind of helps us fill our fill our cup from our day to day stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I love how you said, um, you know, you brought in this OB person and you were thinking, oh, this would be someone who'd be really great to donate to our organization. But also he's somebody that's just really helpful to be have on the team. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, and and it's great that you're able to have a team that matches strengths uh, with passions. And we hope that as your organization grows, you can pull in part-time, full-time personnel. Um, people are, in our experience, the best resources at your disposal uh, and having people with the expertise, knowledge, and humility 
to do the work should always uh, be people that have a seat at your table. Yeah. And, and um, when it comes to building your team, I think you should always be thinking about having those subject matter experts, right? Somebody that has expertise, even if you don't have it yourself, right? Um, to make sure that you're you're getting it right and that what you're what you're implementing or what you're bringing to the community, kind of collaborating with the community, that this is the evidence based stuff, that this is this is what it has been shown to work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and building your own uh, knowledge of this, the field uh, can be done as well. Um, so learning best practices uh, is a really important first step. Um, you can research a lot of other organizations' training guides, uh, like USAID has a ton of different guides, um, and research really just the landscape of the issue that you're working in. Uh, so whether it be maternal and child health, uh, tropical diseases, things like that. Um, at our conference, actually, uh, the Child Health and Mortality Prevention Surveillance Team, uh, or CHAMPS, uh, they did a podcast episode with us last year that you guys may recall, uh, and they'll be talking to us about their research on child mortality and how they see that impacting uh, the way that programs will shift. Um, Dr. Carol Nelson and Jen Stevens uh, will each be doing sessions on uh, maternal mortality. Uh, so these are great resources for learning best practices. Uh, USAID also has um, some learning courses uh, that we can add in the uh, bio as well. Yeah, and there are numerous other resources, right, that we need to be considered. The list is probably endless, but like some of the things would be, you know, logistically, where will you be housed? Is it accessible? How do you get to and from there? Um, um, what resources already exist that you can use, right? Uh, we talked about not reinventing the wheel. Um, some of the things that you'll need, right? Um, what do you have to ship there? Who can ship it? Can you bring it on the plane? Can you not bring it on the plane, right? What are the associated costs with all of that? Um, and then um, thinking about electricity, clean water, all of these things um, that may or may not be available at the place where you're going to or the place um, where you want to help and how, and how your um, um, strategies are going to play into that. Yeah, yeah. And those some of those are, are a little bit more administrative. Um, when you think about like things that may need to be shipped or carried over, there are things like medications, which are a little bit closer to the issue. But you know, where are you gonna work um if you're building this clinic? Uh does that clinic have water? Um, does it have access via a road? Can people get to it? Um these are all resources that need to be considered. Um, and I think you'll probably talk a little bit more about some of the other uh, organizations that you've worked with um, and resources that you've been able to leverage that were already in existence. Um, in our work, uh, we were committed to working with local partners in Sierra Leone uh, and developed a relationship with the United Methodist Church in Sierra Leone. Um, and they had a building that they were using as a teaching college uh, that we were able to repurpose into a hospital. Um, but before uh, we were able to access that building, we started with what we had. Um, we had patients being treated basically in an office building. Um, so you, you, your resources may be at the beginning be very different uh, as time goes on. Um, we also have built relationships with uh, medical surplus recovery organizations. They're called MSROs, uh, like Providence Swedish. Uh, and they've been helping us with providing low-cost medical supplies uh, as we uh, do our work. Um, so there's always um, 
as my uh, professor says, there are four things, your people, your money, your systems, and your tools. Um, so the systems and the tools are, uh, are a big piece that you have to build in. Um, another thing that we talk a lot about in our work is sustainability. Uh, Mariama, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, with sustainability, I, th- I think that's a good um, thing to consider when from the get go, right? From when you're starting, you want to you want to know what your exit strategy is going to be, right? Nobody's planning on doing this forever, I don't think. Um, but as a like, um, you want to think about, you know, how is this going to be sustainable? How will you exit it? What leadership needs to be in place or what capacity building needs to happen in order for this to be sustainable, right? You don't want it to fall apart without you um, because who knows where, you know, the twists and turns of life may take you. You want this to be able to go, you know, be ongoing. So, you know, think of the end at the beginning. Um, As a family physician, that's like, that's my, that's kind of been my own personal mantra, right? I always want to work myself out of a job. Like I want to empower people. I want to educate them to take care of their health and everything so that they stay healthy, so that they take ownership over themselves. And I kind of translate that right to communities. They're very similar, right? You want to strengthen the healthcare education system, try to build human resources for health with Tanky and specifically with the ultrasound program, right? We're trying to make sure that we can train the midwives. And the second time that we went around, we had, Uh, ultrasound champions, right? So people that are doing ultrasound really well, we brought them back so that they could help train the new clinics that we were doing, right? Obviously they had all of our supervision and support, but it kind of just empowers them and motivates them to kind of take ownership of the program themselves. And then, you know, the third, the third um, step is going to be to integrate it into the, you know, midwifery schools so that they have that as part of their education plan. But you always want to start with the exit strategy in mind and one that, you know, helps the community continue the, the program and keep it ongoing. Yeah, absolutely. You you can't use the word sustainability without also using the word empowerment. Um, that's so key. Um, the way that uh, it was told to me uh, is that you have to think about when is it your job to support programs and when is it your job to run programs um, and realizing when, it, when the time it comes for you to step back into that support role and then one day to step into that, uh, you know, congratulations, you know, you're doing great. We're here to cheer you on mode uh, is a huge piece. Yeah. So um, in our work through capacity building, empowering leadership, um, we've been working to localize the solution, which is an increasing trend in global health. Um, Christian Connections for International Health, uh, their executive director, Doug Fountain, will be talking a bit about uh, this increasing trend of localization in uh, global health. Um, We also have a panel uh, with participants and recipients of international partnerships to train local healthcare workers, like you're talking about, Mariama, um, to to empower people. Um, So I hope you'll uh, join us at the conference to hear those sessions. When we started our programs uh, to to talk a little bit about like training, um, we knew that retraining was going to have to be a part of what we did in order for it to be sustainable. Um, We also knew that our trainees would expect to receive a certificate of completion, uh, which goes back to what we were talking about learning from the locals. Um, But we knew that people would see us as leaders in these matters and that we would also have to work really hard to make that leadership empowering and not disempowering like we're talking about. Um, so power dynamics, 
uh, shifting autonomy plays a huge role, uh, which also comes back a little bit to, to the culture conversation we're having um, about uh, who's considered the, the leader at the table. Um, so Dr. Henry Mosley actually will be doing a keynote session at Rising Tides about empowering leadership. Very cool. Yeah. So um, one of the least intuitive things that I think of when I think of any sort of programming, and this is because my master's is in uh, program design, monitoring, and evaluation, is data, uh, monitoring and evaluating data. Uh, with any program that you can create, developing measurable outcomes is how you show progress towards your goals. Yeah. And um, no, I definitely agree. And this is something I wouldn't have thought of. I, I don't think too much as just from my, you know, physician training, but after getting um, my MPH definitely made a lot of sense. It's like, how do you, how do you know what you're doing is working? And how can you show other people that what you're doing is working, right? And um, I think it's extremely important. And so we, um, you know, putting electricity there, it's kind of hard to pinpoint, oh, when you put electricity in a clinic, what are the outcomes? How, how does this play in? You can maybe look at, you know, patient encounters or things like that and see if it improves. But with the ultrasound program, what we've done is uh, we track, like, because it's uh, it's through app, Butterfly IQ, we're able to track the ultrasounds that they do. We're able to see, we've taught them how to do documentation. So we know when they refer somebody, when they don't, what they're referring somebody for. So we're able to show people, hey, we've done this training. These clinics are doing this many ultrasounds. They're referring this percentage of people. So we've done like now, like over 250 ultrasounds, about like 15% of those are being referred for, you know, multiple conditions. But if we had not put those processes processes in place, we'd never be able to tell that story and then, uh, and know, you know, what's working and what's not working. And then also be able to get, you know, additional support or grants or funding, right? Like people want to know, like, what are you doing? Like, prove it to me. You say you're doing this. How do we know that that's the case? And so, yeah, monitoring evaluation, I, I agree hundred percent. It's, it's super important. Whatever you're going to do, find, find a way to track that stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, we, we've learned that if you ever plan to attract any sort of large donor base, you have to start gathering accurate data. Um, and that's, that's difficult sometimes, uh, depending on the size of your program and the work that you're doing, but starting it at the beginning is a, is a huge piece of making it work really well. Um, last plug I want to give is that, uh, Rachel Judd from Kingdom Workers will also be talking at our conference about the challenges of gathering data. Um, like many organizations, uh, Kingdom Workers is located in the United States, but has uh, branches and connections to places overseas. Uh, so encouraging data collection uh, from across the ocean uh, is a whole different uh, ballgame. Um, Jason Paltzer, who also works with uh, Kingdom Workers, but also does work with the Marrow Center, uh, will be talking about the value of research and how that can bring uh, good information to programs. Uh, so even with very small organizations that are working in global health, uh, beginning with the, an idea of doing research on your programming uh, can be really vital and important. Um, so we've talked a lot uh, today about different considerations with programming, and there are lots of other things to consider uh, that we've mentioned just briefly, like logistics, supply chain management, uh, medical waste management. 
donations, medical shipments, uh, donor expectations, just to name a few things off the top of my head that we think about. Um, but we've covered a lot here. Uh, Mariama, is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, yeah, I mean, one one of the other things that you kind of touched on a little bit before also is just collaboration, right? That's, I mean, that's part of why I'm here today, right? Like, um, Together for Global Health was something that was brought to my attention, right, by RHCI, the Rural Health uh, Healthcare Initiative, who um, who was doing, like, you know, just crazy how things, like, line up, right? So when we're out there doing our first ultrasound program and teaching or whatever, going out to the clinics to see what we're doing, then we see this billboard of RHCI, and I'm like, whoa, there's another organization here. They're like, oh, yeah, they're coming to do scanning next week. I was like, next week? So I was like, I got to, you know, get in contact with these people. And sure enough, like, it was great. Like, it, uh, you know, Carol was awesome and welcoming. We shared ideas. Um, we were able to grow off each other. And, and I... I love working with people because I feel like there's this like this false idea, right? That we're always, that we're in competition with each other, right? Like if somebody's doing what you're doing, that you've got to you know keep your secrets to yourself and 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 try to do it better than the other person, and that's like a hundred percent false, right? Like in in the global health field and industry, like we maximize our effectiveness by working together, right? By by learning about other uh, other you know, each other's um, successes and failures, right? Hey, don't do this. I tried that. That doesn't work. Like, uh, and hey, you can do this or I have that, right? Like it is working together that is is going to help global health uh, advance and that collaboration is, um, is key. So um, if you're working in a silo, I think you can be pretty sure you're missing out on some key knowledge or experience or opportunities for like that effective impact and growth and sustainability. Like now, because RHCI and uh, and Tanky have this relationship, right? They're out there now doing ultrasound training and guess what? They're going to help, you know, refresh some of our people that we trained back in November. When we were there in November, we helped retrain some of their people, you know, and because we have that relationship, like these clinics never go more than six months without having like a touch point. Right. Whereas with just one of us, it would have been a year maybe before they saw somebody else again. So like these are just the little things that, you know, I love. I love the idea of Together for Global Health about rising tides. Like I think that it's so key and essential to like at the advancement of, of our, our programs together. Yes, thank you. Um, so before I forget to say, uh, our Rising Tides Conference is March 3rd through 4th, 2023. Um, I've already talked a little bit about our pre-conference sessions on March 3rd, uh, but it is at the United Methodist Building on Capitol Hill. Uh, we're rolling this out as both virtual and in-person. So if you're thinking, oh, you know, I'd love to come, but I can't come uh, to D.C., that's okay. Uh, you can join us virtually via Zoom uh, and still be able to participate with everybody else. Um, so check out our website, helpingchildrenworldwide.org, if you're interested in registering. Um, so I'm going to end this podcast like we end all of our podcast episodes and ask you, Mariama, what are you optimistic about? <laughs> what am I optimistic about? <laughs> I am optimistic about Sierra Leone's future it, in maternal and child health specifically, right? I feel like organizations are talking to each other more, thinking about sustainability, getting like involvement and ownership from the community. And uh, is it a marathon? Definitely, right? This is a long ass marathon, but <laughs> there is a finish line, like it's possible. And so like, I'm very, very optimistic about that. 
Thank you. We are very optimistic about it too. Uh, and we're so glad to have you uh, as a partner in our Together for Global Health Network, advancing maternal and child health in Sierra Leone. Uh, so thank you for being on our show and for being on our Rising Tides Committee. Uh, thank all of you listeners for listening. Uh, and I hope to see you uh, at our next Rising Tides conference or on our next episode. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from us, you can find us at Helping Children Worldwide on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Hashtag Optimistic Voices Podcast.